you know, because there are people, I think everyone has people in their life like this where they do mm-hmm. stupid things, they've even wronged you, but like, uh, but they're all right, you know? Right here. It's a You're good talking dude. Talking to him. <laughs> I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. So you lie to yourself to be happy. There's nothing wrong with that. We all do it. We all go a little mad sometimes. Come on. One of you nuts has got any guts. Put a smile on that face. You're only as healthy as you feel. Listen to me! Listen to you by what right? Because I have a right to be. I have a voice! Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Pop Culture Case Study. Yeah, let's do it. I'm pumped. Let the healing begin. All right, everyone. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Pop Culture Case Study, where we analyze pop culture from a psychological angle, a part of the following films network. So this week, the big release, of course, is Logan Lucky. Um, So because of that, we are taking a look at Steven Soderbergh's previous heist film of there are many of course but the one we're looking for is oceans 11 so we're looking at oceans 11 and automation bias and of course i will explain what that is at some point i promise but to do that this week we have a return guest we have web Bist back again so thank you web for being here oh of course i I, i'll do this show as long as you know uh, my wi-fi uh, stays (laughs) intact we had some technical difficulties to getting this episode done but I will be on this show all week, every week, every episode, just being like, hey, what's up? If you need somebody to cater the episodes <laughs> for you and Mike or anybody, you know I'll do that. So I'm so excited to be here. Excellent. So why don't you tell people about your new podcast? Yes, my podcast is called Darn That Dream. You can find me on uh, iTunes, of course. Uh, I tweet about it occasionally. Uh, I'm not uh, uh, pumping out the number of episodes I used to. Uh, but I, I will get there. It's just been a slow week, and I've got some uh, a couple of really interesting films to talk about. Uh, I mainly focus on um, Bollywood film, classic Bollywood stuff, uh, Indian films. So it, pretty much, if even if you haven't seen them, I try to find ones that are easily accessible via Netflix or mm-hmm. iTunes to rent. Um, but even if you haven't seen them, um, you're not going to be missing out on anything because I go through the film pretty well. I'm not huge into... Uh, oh, because this is spoiled, I can't enjoy something. I think uh, films have uh, more to offer than just a plain narrative. So, uh, uh, yeah, if you're, if you're interested or never have seen Indian cinema, then uh, go ahead and uh, look me up. Nice. Awesome. So uh, before we get into the movie and the psychology, why don't you give us a couple movie recommendations? Yeah, so uh, I thought about heist films uh, quite a bit. Uh, watching this one and two that immediately come to mind uh, one is of course Rafifi um, it's a French film uh, oh you say of the... course like everyone has seen it. <laughs> of course Rafifi well you know if you if you aren't hip to the Criterion collection but oh. uh, Rafifi is a film um, well, I, I remember um, when Ant-Man was a uh, uh, coming out uh paul rudd i believe talked about that this is one of the major influences so maybe people have heard of it then uh it's a french film uh that has influenced the the crime thriller the heist film the, that genre quite a bit so um i i'm not sure if it's on filmstruck uh but it is certainly in the criterion collection uh, i would recommend that and then one that might be the complete opposite of something uh, uh french and and obscure 
is one from 2008. It's a British heist film called The Bank Job. I don't know how many people saw this one. It's a, it's a Jason Statham vehicle, uh, but it's really, you know, kind of an ensemble cast. Um, it I thought it was going to be just kind of a your normal Jason Statham, you know, uh, uh, everything moving a mile a minute and, and him just kind of showing off his hot, hot bod. <laughs> but uh, there was a little bit more going on. Um, it, it doesn't do anything to uh, uh, change the heist film genre at all, I think. But uh, I, I thought it was thoroughly entertaining um, nonetheless. And sometimes you need that in life. You just need something that's, that's uh, um, going to get you from uh, point A to point B. And this one does it. Nice. Uh, definitely two very different films. I like that you've given us a variety. Uh, and I've seen neither one of them, so that gives me two movies to watch. So so I always, always appreciate that. All right, so we are going to take a break. I will talk about automation bias, and then we'll bring Webb back to talk Ocean's Eleven. Hey, everyone. I'm Jason Michael. And I'm Lee Brady, and we're the Atlantic Screen Connection Podcast. We're a podcast that looks to analyze what makes films great with a warm atmosphere and a good laugh. New releases, retrospectives, and absolute classics all reassessed and reviewed. You can find the Atlantic Screen Connection podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher Radio. And if you're looking for a more direct approach, you can find us on Twitter. Just look for Jason Michael at Atlantic SC and Lee Brady at Big Pick Reviews. Welcome to the Atlantic Screen Connection Podcast. The psychology section. So it's been a long time since we've done a psychology section like this. So um, so we're not doing something on depression, we're not doing something on hope, but we are doing something on what we call cognitive biases. biases. So it's easy to hear the word bias and think automatically negative, but there's a reason we have these cognitive biases. It's uh, There's actually a term for it. They're called heuristics. So there's these mental shortcuts that our brain takes in order for us to be more efficient in life. So if we were to always take everything into account, make a pro and con list on every decision we made, we never get out, get out, get, a, get out of bed. We never get out of the house. We never do anything. So that's what these biases are. And one of these is called the automation bias. So what this is, it's the tendency for us to favor decisions from automated decision-making systems and to even when there's contradictory information made without automation that might be correct. So we will we will lean towards the machine rather than the human, even though humans create machines. So a lot of times when automation bias is talked about, it's talked about in really important places like intensive care units, aircraft cockpits, and nuclear power plants, because all of these have kind of moved towards a much more computerized system over over the last couple decades. So these errors of automation bias tend to happen when decision-making involves any degree of dependence on computers or these other automated aids, and the human element gets confined to monitoring the tasks that the computers are doing. Some examples of these situations can involve uh, things like flying on automatic pilot, but also things that are really mundane, like the use of spell-checking programs, like if something doesn't get highlighted for some reason, like the word you misspelled is actually a word, we'll just believe it's spelled correctly and move right along. Now, automation bias can be errors of commission or omission. Commission adding something, omission taking something out. So the omission errors, this happens when the automated devices fail to detect problems. And commission errors are when users follow a directive given by the automated device without taking other sources of information into account. So errors of omission have been shown to result 
from what we call a decrement of cognitive vigilance, so not enough vigilance. And errors of commission occur for a couple of reasons. One, actual redirection of attention away from the automated aid. Two, not paying enough attention to the aid. And three, actively discounting information that counters the aid's recommendations. Omission errors tend to take place when the, the human being fails to notice an automation failure. So the spell checking program is a perfect is a perfect example of that. So interestingly enough, if people are trained in this, there will be a reduction in commission errors, but not of omission errors. So one thing we know is if you have any kind of automatic aid, there will be a much less likelihood that you will make the cognitive effort to seek out other information or process all the other available information in a complex fashion. So we come much more, much more simple because it's shorter and it's more efficient. So according to one study, there are three main factors that lead to this bias. One, we have a tendency as humans to choose the least cognitive approach to decision-making. It's actually called the cognitive miser hypothesis. So, and, and that's what these biases are for. And sometimes they do good because it's a quicker decision and a simpler decision. Secondly, we tend to view automated aids as having better analytical abilities than we do. And third, we have a tendency to reduce our own effort when we're sharing tasks either with another person or with an automated aid. So a bunch of other factors can lead to an over-reliance on automation. This includes lack of confidence in your own abilities, a lack of readily available other information, or a desire to save time and effort on these complex tasks or days that you have high workloads. It's also been shown that people who have greater confidence in their own decision-making ability tend to be less reliant on external automated support, while those with more trust in decision support systems, they call them DSS, are much more dependent upon it. All right, so there's a whole bunch of stuff that affects automation bias. One of them is as simple as screen design. So there was a study that got published in the Journal of American Medical Informatics Association, and they actually found that the position and the size of the advice on a screen can impact the likelihood of this bias showing up. So if you have prominently displayed advice, whether it's correct or not, it's more likely to be followed. According to another study, a greater amount of detail on the screen can make people less conservative and increase the likelihood of automation bias. And one final study showed that making individuals accountable for their performance or the accuracy of their decisions reduced automation bias. So what they're, what they're doing there is they're introducing a situation where you have to be cognitively flexible, where you can't just follow the instructions because if the instructions are wrong, then you get punished, not the machine. Just general availability also affects it. So if there's automation decision aids available, it will feed into this kind of general tendency of us to use less cognitive effort. Also, an awareness of the process has an effect. So one study found that if people are aware of the reasoning process that is employed by the system, by the automated aid, then they're likely to adjust their reliance accordingly. So if they if they know how these things work and they feel like, well, that's not something that's 100% for sure, then they're going to use a lot less of this bias and actually think on their own. Also, how you're working makes a difference as, as far as whether you're working alone or with people. So if you're in a job where you work with a crew instead of individuals, it doesn't eliminate automation bias, but it does decrease it. One study showed that when automated devices failed to detect system irregularities, these teams were actually no more successful than solo performers at responding to these things. And of course, we mentioned training also has an effect. It helps. There's been some studies about when automation fails and something called learned carelessness. So 
Automation failure is usually followed by a drop in what they would call operator trust. So the person who is following those instructions, if it fails the next time, they're not going to trust it so much. But the next time, they're not going to trust it that much, but as the computer continues to be right after that one failure, the, recover, the, the trust gets recovered slowly. So this decline in trust after an initial failure is described as the first failure effect. Now, on the same hand, if automated aids prove to be really reliable over time, the result is a heightened level of automation bias, and this is called learned carelessness. So the more the machine is right, the less we have to care, the less we have to think. Also, external pressures, those have an effect, just like they have an effect on everything. So if there's external pressure being put on an individual's cognitive capacity, like they're distracted with something else, then they may rely more on the automation. Okay, so obviously there's a lot of information out there about automation bias when you talk about things like computer systems and uh, pilots, but that's not really what we're looking at, both in a movie like this and on a psychology podcast. So I'm going to kind of focus it a little bit. So there is some information out there about automation bias in healthcare. Uh, so that's obviously going to affect the psychological realm a lot more. So there's something called Clinical Decision Support Systems, or CDSS, and they're designed to aid clinical decision-making. So the potential here is they can, they can have a really big improvement in this regard in the healthcare, in the healthcare system, and it, will result, and it will result in better patient outcomes. So that all sounds pretty great, right? But while CDSS, when used properly, can bring about this overall improvement in performance, it can also cause errors that may not be recognized due to automation bias, which of course in turn gives lower patient outcomes. One danger is that the incorrect advice given by these systems can cause users to change an already correct decision that they would have made on their own. Now, of course, when you're working in healthcare, there, this is really serious stuff. And some of the potentials, the potential consequences, you have to be really careful because it's, re it's really important to be aware of this problem and to kind of think on your feet and to kind of, kind of take everything with a grain of salt, not just look at that screen and go, well, the screen says so, so it must be this. Like you have to use your clinical judgment. Sometimes this automation bias in clinical settings is a huge problem that makes the CDSS really counterproductive. Of course, sometimes it's a minor problem, too, and the benefits will outweigh the damage being done. One study actually found that there was more automation bias am among older users, but they noted that it, it could be a result not of age, but of experience. The study suggests that familiarity with these CDSSs often leads to this desensitization and a habituation effect that's going on. So although automation bias occurs more often among people who are inexperienced in a given task, inexperienced users exhibit the most performance improvement when they use CD CDSS. So if you already have the experience, this program probably isn't going to help you that much. In another study, the use of CDSS improved clinicians' answers by 21%. And so that went from 29% to 50%, with 7% of correct non-CDSS answers being changed incorrectly. A 2005 study found that when primary care physicians were using um, electronic sources like things as simple as Google or things like Medline and PubMed, which is where you can find uh, scholarly articles about things, there was a small to medium increase in correct answers, while in an equally small percentage of instances, the physicians were misled by the use of these sources and changed correct to incorrect answers. 
Studies in both 2004 and 2008 involved the effect of automated aids on diagnosis of breast cancer, and they found clear evidence of automation bias involving omission errors. Cancers diagnosed in 46% of cases without automated aids were discovered in only 21% of the cases with automated aids that failed to identify the cancer. Um, the last area I want to talk about is how often this happens in the military. So automation bias is really crucial in the use of intelligent decision support systems for military operations. There was actually a 2004 study that found that automation bias effects have contributed to a number of fatal military decisions, including friendly fire killings during the Iraq war. So this is something we have to be really careful of when, when, our, when we're training our people in the military is that you know, one of the things, one of the myths I think about the military is that we're training quote unquote robots and people who just follow orders. When in, when in reality, you have to be able to follow orders, but you also have to be able to make decisions on the fly if you're going to be a productive member of the military force. So this automation bias is kind of really doing a lot of damage because it's, in, it's increasing this kind of order following mentality, which, you know, you need men and women who would be able to follow orders in the heat of battle in the military. But that's going to happen through kind of the, the process, especially during boot camp. We don't really need to increase that through the use of this kind of automation. So, you know, it, we might need either better automated systems or better ways to train people when using automatic, automated systems so they're still kind of thinking on their feet. All right, so that's pretty much it for the psychology section on automation bias. But you know where there's a lot of automation is in casinos, and we will see that a lot in Ocean's Eleven. So we're going to take a quick break here, and then we will bring back WebBIS to talk about Ocean's Eleven and automation bias. Watched the movie, check, popped the popcorn, check, sealed off all the doors and windows so that no one knows I'm home, check, and double check. I'm ready to listen to another episode of Pop Culture Case Study. Oh, hello. I <laughs> didn't realize you were here. Hey, it's uh, Dwight, your best friend from the Broken Brain Podcast. Uh, what's that you say? What's the Broken Brain Podcast? Well, I'm glad you asked. The Broken Brain is your weekly dose of mental health. It's a podcast hosted by me, a professional therapist, where we talk about the latest and most exciting things that we can find and learn about in the world of mental health treatment. We talk about anxiety, depression, uh, neurological underpinnings of the brain, addiction. We talk a lot about trauma recovery and uh, just all, all kinds of things that you'd expect from a show uh, hosted by and guested on by professional therapists and other medical mental health professionals. You may even be lucky enough to tune in to an episode starring your very own David Hart from this very program. Speaking of which, Dave is about to tell us all about how to feel about this new or possibly old breaking blockbuster classic movie that he's about to say now. Take it away, Dave. All right, so we're back. So we're back to talk about the movie. So for the release of Logan Lucky, let's take a look at director Steven Soderbergh's previous heist film. So, Webb, what is your history with Ocean's Eleven? Um, Ocean's Eleven is something that uh, – okay, so my father, uh, in order to support his family when we came to America, got a bunch of odd jobs. And uh, one of the things that he did was work in a uh, movie theater for uh, a long time. And then he also worked at a 7-Eleven as a cashier. And this is a guy who was teaching accounting um, in India, has a master, the equivalent of a master's degree in accounting. And so uh, it, it always, it's really, really odd for me to think about that. But, you know, hey, <laughs> that's, that's the American dream. I, I love George Carlin. And, and one of the lines he says that's very famous is uh, it's called the American dream because you have to be asleep to believe it. But <laughs> I don't know. I feel 
I feel like uh, my family has has kind of uh, achieved it. Um, and at this point, my father owns a couple 7-Elevens. So every now and then, you, you'll go into 7-Eleven and you'll see uh, um, a couple movies or the treasure bin. And when my father was working uh, at the 7-Eleven as just a cashier, uh, he would bring home a movie or two that is like, hey, this was like left open and, and you can watch it and then we'll put it back. I was like, okay, right on. And so Ocean's 11 was one of those films that I was like, all right, let's just put it in. And uh, my mom's a big uh, movie fanatic and, and she can't get enough of Clooney and, and Brad Pitt and that uh, accepted Hollywood elite. And this was kind of the <laughs> perfect uh, uh, film, I think, for us to kind of all sit down and watch. So I watched this uh, um, fairly soon after it came out on home video. Nice. Yeah, for me, I'm trying to remember. It's been so long I mean, since this movie was released. Cause it came out in 2001, so now we're, we're kind of yeah. edging towards 20 years since this movie Ooh, came wow. out, right? Wow. So we're like 16, 17 years in. Um, and I feel like I probably must have seen this in the theater, um, but I don't I, – those aren't like my most clear memories of it. But I definitely saw it you know, on video. It's one of those movies I feel like – and we'll talk about this more later – but I feel like you can just pop in and either pay full attention to it or half attention to it, and it's yes. just as enjoyable. Like it's like – you know, it's just it's it's comfortable. You know, like it's, there's it's a total hangout movie, right? It's know? not challenging you. Like this is not the movie that's gonna no. like change your life and be like this is cinema. Like it's not mm-hmm. that kind of movie. It's just a like let's have a good time. And I think I think that's purposeful. I think they're trying to recapture yeah. that spirit. You know, of the Rat Pack. So of course it's going to be comfortable and fun and cool. Yeah. Uh, and it's it's I think it's hard to find a movie that is kind of that masters that. Um, that is this mm-hmm. comfortably cool movie. So, so that's my kind of history. I mean, it's a movie I've probably seen four or five times yeah, uh, on video too. because it is that movie you can put on in any situation. Like it's a, yeah. it's pretty much a completely non-offensive movie too. I mean, I, yep. I think you can argue there's stuff done with the Asian character in this movie that's not so great. You know, kind of looking back, like you have this character who barely speaks and he's, you know, mm-hmm. of course, like a contortionist and all this, but. I think in general, it's a movie that, like, you know, it's not going to challenge you in a good way, and it's not going to challenge you in a bad way either. It's just going to no, just going to be there for you. So let's let's jump into Steven Soderbergh. So, what did you think of the direction of this film in particular? It was. It suggests that, like, when you say when I mention it's like a hangout movie, and you say it's not challenging, it's it's so. It's a breezy film that chugs along at its own pace, uh, a brisk pace, and um, I think he did a really great job. Uh, and and I, I don't think this is the movie that uh, um, introduced this kind of editing, but uh, where you talk about the plan in narration mm-hmm. and the plan is occurring and, and it just keeps things moving so, uh, uh, so quickly and uh, even when it's flashing back and forth, everything uh, – uh, nothing – there's nothing complicated. Um, and so he managed to create uh, uh, that feeling really, really well. Um, he and he also took advantage of the ensemble cast that he has. You know, Casey Affleck is is in this movie, and he's just future arguing. Oscar yeah. winner Casey Affleck. <laughs> yeah. Who knew? Yeah, exactly. So it's like you've got these uh, um, uh, future stars, may, uh, stars at that time, and even support like Bernie Mac is somebody who is mm-hmm. a very well, well, what very well known, uh, and even uh, having someone of his caliber there uh, uh, helps so much. So he was able to juggle quite a bit. There's a lot going on. Yes. I mean, if you think too much into it, uh, that like the plot and stuff, I'm sure you could pick up. But why things. would you? Like, what's yeah. the point? I I yep. think you bring up the the most important important point when it comes to Soderbergh. 
as far as this movie goes, is imagine the fucking egos on this yeah. set. Not only not only Clooney and Pitt, because like they were big stars, of course, but still mm-hmm. kind of coming into themselves as these mega stars, right? Yeah. Um, but then like all these kind of all these side characters who are still really well known in Hollywood. You know, these are not nobodies. Like, of course, I no, mean, like yeah. Matt Damon was just coming up, but you've got, you know, yeah. you've got all these people kind of from old Hollywood who are playing second, third, fifth fiddle. Oh, that's right. You know what I mean? Yep. And, and it would be really easy for this to get out of control. And I'm sure there were probably people demanding, you know, more scenes, more of a more of an important part in the film. And the movie just feels so well balanced. And even yep. someone like Andy Garcia, who at this time was a, was relatively big. Like, I think we look back on this now and we think of Andy Garcia as like kind of second or third tier, but he was pretty well known yeah. at this point. Um, and I think it's probably at this point where Pitt and Clooney were just passing him. Like one was going down and the other two were going up. You know what I gotcha. mean? Gotcha. Was, was uh, Godfather, I'm sorry, I kept trying to think, was Godfather 3 around that same time too, or was it? Oh, that's a good question. Oh, that's... no, it's not. I'm sorry. 1990 i'm way off you know why it's because i've never seen godfather 3 you're all right uh out of pure fear <laughs> you're okay i'm way off you don't need I to see that. About that but no i wanted to check uh <laughs> what andy garcia was doing at the time yeah he had just kind of started going down he had been in desperate measures a couple years before that which was seen as something that would be a big movie and things to do in denver when you're dead which is another one that people thought was <laughs> going to be good and wasn't bad so he's really kind of on the tail end of his popularity there so it's a really interesting choice to play yeah. the heavy uh because before that he usually plays kind of the romantic lead so it's like i, I like the fact that he kind of turned that around um mm-hmm. but there's also like there's not i was surprised watching this movie i was expecting to see all these kind of fancy shots and director's tricks uh, because it is Soderbergh. I mean, this is the guy who did traffic. Yeah. Like, he really knows his craft. Um, yeah. And I think he knew enough to just kind of sit back and let things happen because this yes. isn't the type of movie you should be distracted by the camera work. Like, this is a movie that survives on star power and almost star nothing power. else. Like... <laughs> And and the and I will also argue also the dialogue because oh, yeah. it's dialogue written and and delivered in a way that normal people don't talk. Normal people aren't this fucking cool. No, no like, one's ever been this cool know? in the history of people. Like that's never <laughs> exactly. happened. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. So that that helps. And you know what? Do you think this film would work without the star power? Because no. these characters. Essentially, no. it's Clooney. It's not Danny Ocean. You're watching. Right. It's George Clooney and Brad Pitt in that role because these aren't really characters. They're no. just personalities. And it's not even like – it's not just that they're movie stars. They're these movie yeah. stars that somehow still feel approachable. Like Clooney has this <laughs> gift. He really does like where he is talking to the camera and the camera is a person in the scene and you feel like you're charmed by him. Like, you have to be charmed by Clooney yeah. or this movie falls flat on its face. Because everybody is trying – and that's not just, like, a romantic sexual thing with him and, like, Julia Roberts. I mean, that's also all these people he's convincing to come in on yes. this job. Like, this whole movie is a con. Not only the, the con that they put on the casinos, but the con that he's putting on all these people who, when they first hear this plan, are like, well, that's fucking stupid. Yeah. No, we're but not. He's got we're not the soft doing cell. Yeah. He, he just he knows how to Yeah, do and it. he knows how to work with Brad Pitt's character. Like the two of them together, mm-hmm. like it just it has this movie just oozes charm. You know, and yeah. that goes and that goes back, of course, you know, talking about the rat pack and people like Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin, like they ooze charm too for that time. Like that charm probably mm-hmm. doesn't work now, but back then it worked 
to a T. And, yep. I, and, and I never would have thought if you told me in like the year 2000, we were going to like, we're going to make another Ocean's Eleven movie and we're going to cast the new Rat Pack. I would be like, yeah, that's a bad, that's a bad idea. Like that's, <laughs> this is never going to work because if one of these casting choices is off just a little bit, yeah. it doesn't work. But it really does. And Soderbergh really balances all that well. And 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 I think one of the things they did right in the beginning is like to show to not only show you that these are stars, but to tell you because you've got Clooney mm-hmm. and Brad Pitt on one end of the table, and on the other end you've got Topher Grace and the kid from Seventh Heaven, and you're yep. just like in just that shot alone. It's the uh, comparison that that's purposeful. Exactly. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. And so um, it, it was kind of I, I didn't notice it until this time around. It's like these guys are even bigger in comparison because yeah. we all know what happened in Spider-Man three. But <laughs> well, you know what? In good company was all right. Anyway. <laughs> um, but yeah. Uh, uh, so th- it helped so much. And and yeah, right. I, I think I can now officially say that it is uh, absolutely essential that it is these actors that right. are bringing their a game and, and it. it, it uh, it shows, and that's why the movie succeeds. Yeah. I also think something that Soderbergh is really good at in this movie, there is a number of shots in this movie where our main characters are in a crowd, and he frames the camera in such a perfect way that you cannot help but notice them. And yeah. and, so, and when it's Clooney and Pitt, like, your job's pretty easy because we, <laughs> we know who we're looking for. But even yeah. when we have our other kind of ancillary characters in the crowd – no matter where the camera is, they're always center frame. And there's yeah. little bits of direction going on there in the the facial expression that he has the actors give in those little moments. So you know they're listening, they're taking things in, they're figuring things out, and you feel like part of the team. And I think that's another thing mm-hmm. that you really need to feel. Because if at any point in this movie you're on Andy Garcia's side, this movie yeah. also doesn't work. Like, you need <laughs> to be rooting for Danny for pretty Absolutely. much the whole movie, even though he's He's kind of a jackass, you know, he's way overconfident. He's, he hasn't been a good partner to, uh, to this woman, you know, he hasn't really been a good friend to a lot of people. So you're, Mm -hmm. you know, so it's hard. He's a hard character to root for, which is again, the casting of this. It's necessary to have someone with that charisma to have someone that like, you know, cause there are people, I think everyone has people in their life like this where they do Mm -hmm. stupid things. They've even wronged you, but like, uh, but they're all right. You know, right here. It's a good dude. (laughs) He's a good dude, you know, like, and you just, you want him to do well. And I think that really comes through in Soderbergh's direction here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there are a couple of shots. The one that you absolutely reminded me of is the destruction of, uh, uh, one of the casino buildings. Mm -hmm. Um, and and everyone looks towards the explosion, and, and Julia Roberts looks directly at. Yeah, that's uh, the exact scene I was thinking of. Yep. Yeah, that one absolutely beautifully framed, and and again, the 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 visual medium like that mm-hmm. right there shows you why it's so good. Um, and then another one, I don't know why I like this one, but uh, it's right in the beginning after uh, the card game. Pitt and Clooney are dry, are kind of in the car. Oh, the and shot so, behind the behind the car. Yeah, I have that yes. written down. It's. I don't think I've ever seen a shot like that. Mm -hmm. Definitely not before and maybe not since it is. So it's even though they're just kind of ambling along, it feels a lot more real and more visceral than most behind the car shots, because usually they put the camera like in the back seat, right? Where yes, where you yes. just see the the two people talking or they green screen it. I love that this seems either mounted on the back bumper or Definitely. more likely they have they have a separate car following with the camera mounted on the hood, and it really gives you that feeling of like of your 
of your like you're listening in on this conversation that maybe you shouldn't you know right so cool i felt like not in the back seat but at the very least just like right behind that vehicle and able to listen to them it was it was a great shot so there's a lot of uh, stuff sprinkled in where it's not flashy but it has a personality each of those shots and that's what you get with someone like soderbergh like you could have given this to Anyone. Uh, I don't want to put any. I don't want to put anyone down. Not, I, the one, the name that comes to mind is Fred Ratner. But you could have given this Please, to anybody. No. <laughs> and, Ocean's and Eleven, probably, starring Chris Tucker and Charlie Sheen. Like no. <laughs> it, uh, yeah. It ultimately, like I think the movie either way would have succeeded uh, to some degree, but because you have someone right. like Soderbergh, uh, uh, it absolutely elevates it uh, to a higher level. Yeah. Where, and, go ahead. Oh yeah, the way like um. Uh, something like Gone Girl or or right. or even the game, like where it's like Fincher probably doesn't need to do this kind of pulpy stuff, but the fact that he does it and he does it so well, you can't argue with that craft. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think the only other shot I really wanted to talk about, there's kind of the quintessential Ocean's Eleven shot with Danny Ocean like coming up the escalator where it like slowly oh. reveals him. It just, there's something about it and I can't, I I struggle to explain why it's so cool, but it's just that slow reveal of, of our, you know, our silver fox, George Clooney, like as he's entering this world where he yep. shouldn't be if he was going to obey the letter of the law that he's been given, then he would not be nowhere near this. And it's just like, and that, I think that is the moment where I'm like, okay, I'm rooting for this guy. There's something about him. There's something about this reveal that I just, I want to see more. You know, yeah. and and that has become that's the shot they show in all the trailers. That's the I mean, that is the one I think that people will remember. Um, it's the first time you see him after I think he's been uh, uh, released from prison. He's shaved. Yep. He's got like a suit on. And you're just like, that's a good point. Ugh. It's the transformation oh scene because earlier yeah. you see him and he's kind of all, you know, dirty and grungy. And it's and you're like, oh, should I trust this guy? And then he shows up and he cleans up nice. <laughs> well, I mean, to be fair, even when he wasn't, uh, you know, when he was so filthy and dirty, I still would let him have his way with me. Still be you know, okay. He's still, yes. even in prison where he's got uh, the, the goatee, yes. it's, it's fine. Um, but absolutely, it, it's uh, – uh, God, he just oozes cool. Like there's yes. a reason why um, – I, I recently read Amy Poehler's um, – uh, uh, memoirs, yes, please, and she mm-hmm. talks about uh, doing a uh, uh, an impromptu bit at one of the Golden Globes, I think, uh, oh, with yeah. Clooney, and she she's like, "There's a reason why everybody loves Clooney, and, yep. and his his charisma comes through." Yeah, absolutely. So that's a perfect transition to to the actors. I think, although I would love to just talk for an hour about George Clooney, I could definitely do that. <laughs> but let's move yeah. on. So. <laughs> Here's what I noticed more than anything. Brad Pitt's performance is great here. I think he's a a great, uh, like just a a great like kind of not necessarily second fiddle, but partner to Clooney's character. Yeah. I think he's perfect. Um, but I think this is the start of Brad Pitt eating throughout movies. If you watch it in every goddamn huh. scene, he's eating something else. Like there's like seven different shots of him eating food in this movie. And that is transferred throughout his career. If you look at things like Moneyball, he's constantly huh. eating through that. And it was just like, what a weird, what a weird fucking choice. And it just makes me wonder, do you think Pitt asked for that? Or do you think that's a Soderbergh invention? <laughs> like that's part I'm of his characterization. Have, I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to, Watch out for that. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's this now, is the most hmm. I've ever seen it in any movie. Like, it's okay. just consistent throughout. But but I do still think it's it's a great performance. Like, it's a yeah. – I think, I think it's easy to denigrate performances like that. Well, oh, well, it was just cool. Man, there's no such thing as just cool. That is something mm-hmm. that 
ninety percent of actors can't pull off. You know, and yeah, you have to work at being cool, like at being nonchalant. There is a right? lot of it's a lot of effort exactly. that goes into that. Mm-hmm. It's it's a bit of a uh, uh, not misnomer. What is it? It's, it's ironic that you have to work so hard at being like somebody who doesn't care. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and, and they do it. They do it. Uh, there was a lot said about Don Cheadle's British accent. Uh, did he, it's did horrible. It get in the way for you? It, I mean, okay. okay, yes and no. Yes, because it is a terrible British accent. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like it's a joke British accent. It's like it's just like probably if you asked you know a British person to do an American accent, you'd be like, what mm. the fuck is that? But because this movie is so ridiculous and so tongue in cheek, yeah. I think it weirdly works. For the movie, like it's still fine, like it is noticeable, and there are moments where it's distracting, but I think overall it's okay, it's fine. Oh, leave it out. You tossers, you had one job to do. Yeah, I I kind of, uh, I I, I guess when I first saw it, I didn't think about it too much because I was like, oh, he's kind of sounds like somebody who's British, so I just assume he's British. Um, but uh, even now it's like, yeah, you're right. I don't know why I don't mind it. I know it's bad, right. but I don't mind it. Um, and, and maybe that's, well, the whole movie's to... a farce, right? So yeah, like, why, I mean, it's fine. Like it doesn't, yeah. it doesn't bug me. I think probably the best, uh, the best supporting performance here is Bernie Mac. I, I, th- I, I think, think he's so. great here. Like it, it's one of those performances that makes me sad that he left early. You know yeah. what I mean? It's like, cause it, it's cool that someone, Someone that outlandish when you talk about language, you talk about stand-up, and you talk about things that may or may not be offensive, that he can fit into this movie that's so inoffensive, you know? I and, wish that he was given more to do, though. Right, sure. Like, that's my biggest problem. Like, like he, he literally strong-arms a guy into getting a better deal on RVs or whatever. It's, it's like, amazing. And the scene with him and Matt yeah. Damon, like when Matt Damon's posing oh. as the, I mean, that is, that's one of my favorite yeah. scenes in the whole film. Like, it yeah. really, really works. Both... Both performances in that scene are great. Like Matt Damon looking like a scared little white guy is maybe yeah. maybe his best performance. Like <laughs> that's mm-hmm. not true. It's not his best performance, but it's really really enjoyable. And it's also it's it was cool to see Matt Damon in this kind of early role, you know, where yeah. he's not kind of hogging the screen is a mean way to say it, but he's he's a star at this point. He's not going to mm-hmm. take roles like this anymore. So it's nice to see him do this kind of side comedic bit. I don't know. I mean, he was in Interstellar for all of, you know, 15 minutes. Like, I, I feel like he's still willing to, to uh, uh, take but, those. But I don't know. Parts. He's not making fun of himself in that. No. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. this is very yeah. much. I mean, he is the he's the target of mockery for most of this movie. Yeah. Like, he's the kid who doesn't know his place yet, you know? I, I One of the things that always stuck with me, even from my first viewing, is... Uh, uh, the scene where um, Brad Pitt tells him, like, you want to be funny, but not make him laugh. Mm. And then he's trying to show him t- you want to be completely forgettable. Uh, right. uh, I don't know why, but that always sticks with me. And I, was, and I remember watching it. I was like, how is he going to pull that off? And Matt Damon pulls it off. He does. Like, that's yeah. a genius bit of uh, it would be uh, It would be a real easy out to, like, have that speech and then not show us how he does yeah. that. And I, I do, I do really enjoy that. But I also think Elliot Gould is really good here. Like in, so in a good. small part, like there's really, and you know, you got Scott Kahn, you already mentioned Casey Affleck, Casey. like, yeah. and the two of them, like you can tell they're just having a good time. Like they're just <laughs> fucking around and it really works. Uh, their, their interactions are great. Like it, yeah. there's just not a lot of weak links. I think maybe that's why Cheadle's accent gets hammered so much yeah is that there's really not a lot of weakness to talk about in these performances 
even even though that accent that he he I guess attempted like one thing I will always remember uh, uh, him for in this movie is introducing me to Cockney slang because mm. that one line I I quote that quite a bit word in Barney. Do you know how Cockney slang works? Like I had to look this up because I didn't quite get it. No, go ahead, it's, tell me, educate okay. me. So Cockney slang works uh, when you are looking for a word that rhymes with something. Uh, you want to say that's somewhat related. So he wants to say we're in trouble. So he says we're in Barney, hmm. Barney rubble, rubble rhymes with trouble. <laughs> so if I told you that uh, oh, I'm going to go down to the bar and get me a couple Britneys, what do you think I mean? God, I still have no idea, even after that explanation. Okay. Uh, uh, if I say I want, I'm going to go get a couple Britneys, it means I want beers, Britney Spears, beers. <laughs> So I think Cockney uh, slang is really interesting. I think it's intricate. And, and when you um, get it, uh, I, I, I mean, I still haven't. I really have to think about it when somebody speaks in Cockney slang to me, which is uh, very rare in Southern Maryland. Yeah, but... doesn't happen a lot, <laughs> I would no. imagine. Uh, but I still really appreciate it because it's like it's a slang that you really have to work at. So yeah, it's, I, I it's effortful that. slang. That's <laughs> yes. So what did you think of Julia Roberts in this film? Um, you know, it's such a guy movie. It, she mm -hmm. does absolutely stand out um, with really not much at all to do. So she's really there just to be Julia Roberts. Not that, you know, any of the others are, are uh, not being some version of themselves, maybe. But um, I don't mind that she's in it. I, she's just... You could replace her with pretty much anybody. I don't know. What do you think? I mean, I think I think she's good here. I think this is one of the last times I can remember really enjoying Julia Roberts on screen because the last last ten or fifteen years haven't been so great. Like most of her really memorable stuff, you got Aaron Brockovich right before this. Of course, Pretty Woman way before this. I mean, she yeah. was in Closer right after this, but to me, she's kind of the weak link in that movie. Um, so, but I think again, she's got that movie star charisma. Um, that you need here. Like you need someone to be, you need to understand why you need to understand why Danny Ocean is so hung up on her. Like, why mm -hmm. wouldn't he just walk away? Why is he risking everything and all these people's freedom and his own money for this woman? Yeah. You know? And I think I, I like the scenes they have together. I like that. She, she kind of knocks him down a peg or two every time they talk. I think, I think that really yes, works. That's and, true. You know, and it's, it's enjoyable. I, you know, and Julia Roberts is one of those actors that I think, you know, of course, got really, really big very early in her career and kind of was just America's sweetheart. Um, and I think sometimes yeah. she gets a little bit undersold as far as her talent. I think she's got a lot more than she's given credit for. And some of that is on her and the and the role she has picked. She has definitely gone the romantic comedy route for most of her career. Uh, mm -hmm. But I think there's something more there. And I think she and you mentioned she's not here that much, but she she has to be memorable. Because she is I'm a symbol, if nothing else. Because you, you're starting to make me think about all the scenes. Uh, a one that really stands out to me and the way she delivers this line with such uh, uh, vitriol is uh, he, uh, she, uh, he doesn't make me Ooh, cry. Oh, it's a great line. Oh, Does he make you laugh? He doesn't yeah. make me cry. And I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> like, yeah, I like, every time – I mean great. I've seen this movie five or six times as I mentioned. But every time she, she hits that line because she hits it with that – almost like a hiss. You know, yeah. like – like you can't you can't charm me, motherfucker. I know you. Don't don't do this. You know, and it it really <laughs> mm -hmm. really works. So I think I think she's probably someone who doesn't get mentioned 
uh, when it comes to this movie, but I think yeah. she's really good. I think, you know, as the movies go on, maybe less so in like, you know, Ocean's 12 and that stuff. It, I think, I think these movies are all good. This whole series is good. It's enjoyable. It can be fluff, but I think to me, this is the pinnacle of these movies. Like this is the one yeah. I will go to most often. I, and I will, uh, one more thing about Julia Roberts and, and big, big uh, uh, plus to Soderbergh here. Her introduction sequence, uh, the scene parallels um danny's mm-hmm. perfectly because she's another is great descending. direction decision yeah yeah yep he's ascending from below she's coming uh uh, uh down from up above he is taking the escalators she's taking the stairs it's yeah. a really great uh comparison um yeah. it does a great job and and she does look really regal yeah you know in in the scene and absolutely and and she has a quite several different outfits in this one um and all and she's 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 pulling them off so yep. um i not literally uh <laughs> and unfortunately she is quite she's quite an attractive lady um but you know you know and one of the things um i quickly looked her up uh, when you mentioned like what she's been up to lately even money monster you know like i i enjoyed that it was you're the one not, I, <laughs> That movie, like, honestly, I remember not liking it, but I couldn't tell you why, because it's totally forgettable. Yeah. And she's actually, I think she's okay in that movie. I think she's solid. But, like, definitely not something to her or George Clooney's stature. You know? Like, in 10 years, if if you mention Money Monster, no one's going to know what you're talking about. I agree. Whereas, like, this movie, 17 years later, I think people know. And even um, Aaron Brockovich, people know. People will remember that, but... Yeah, Money Monster, not so much. That's I'll always remember it because it, you know it's like remember that year I had Movie Pass and I just went to everything. Yep, <laughs> that you're gonna be the one. Yeah. Jodie Foster will love you. She she's very glad you enjoyed her movie. I'm sure <gasps> she directed that. She directed That's it right. exactly. Boy. and it tells you everything you know that you didn't remember that. All right, yeah. uh, so let's move to the script. Let's move to the writing, which I think is yeah. really the strong suit of this movie. Like I think. Yeah. It's it's a really tough balance to write a quote unquote cool movie because yeah. I mean you mentioned no one no one is this cool and that's true but if you overwrite a cool movie your audience will just roll their eyes and I think yeah. like this is the the perfect balance and I think a lot of it works because of the the plot point of of Danny trying to get his lady back because it shows that he has weakness and it shows that he doesn't make the right choice all the time and there are moments where the crew can actually be like dude what the fuck you can't do this mm-hmm. especially Brad Pitt's character and like I like the little feint in this movie where he like essentially kicks Clooney out of the crew for the job yeah. in that sequence and and that is something I didn't see coming so I just think you know from the very introduction of this film every single thing is so sharp like it's so well written everyone is so cool but in a way that is endearing instead of distancing mm-hmm. i i don't think there is any but any character i was like well he wouldn't say that or she wouldn't say this or they wouldn't do that yeah everything flows just so damn well mm-hmm. and and it's it's a perfect um example of everything kind of coming together uh, so, and like we already mentioned, so many lines of dialogue uh, already that that we really enjoy the Cockney slang, uh, um, Julia Roberts' work, the the little spiel that uh, the speech that Clooney uh, says about the the house, uh, um, mm-hmm. and and Brad Pitt yeah. calls him on it. Yeah. So it's like even when they are breaking that fourth wall a little bit, mm-hmm. uh, just kind of winking at the audience, like that's tricky. Like you can't, mm-hmm. not everything gets to be. Uh, like Deadpool, where you can do it as much as you want. Sometimes in these, kind I would of movies, argue that even in Deadpool, you shouldn't do that. 
<laughs> but, okay, here's why I love this script so much. This script has yeah. a lot of two things I despise in movies. Mm-hmm. It has a lot of exposition and has a oh. lot of voiceover. It's all exposition and voiceover, yeah. but it works. Like yep. you mentioned the idea of like, you know, telling and showing the plan at the same time. Yep. I don't think I've ever seen it work better. Like, I just think it's so entertaining. And some of it is because some of it's very tongue in cheek. Like, there's a moment where, like, oh, yeah, we forgot about these other five things that the security has. Like, whoops, sorry about that. Yeah, you got to get through lasers, too. Sorry. Yeah. You know, and it, but it goes through the whole plan and it, it's all very, it's not only tongue in cheek, but it's also kind of self referential and self denigrating. Like, they, there's not this, like, we are uber confident and everything we do is the best. It's, it's also like, hey, you know what's fucked up? We also have to go down this elevator shaft. So you're still in, you know, and I just think it's handled so well and in such a cool fashion that you forgive all of its faults. Yep. Um, Another line of dialogue before I forget it is is um, right in the beginning when Matt Damon is unsure of whether or not uh, he's going to continue, you know, go uh, um, with the plan where they all kind of meet up. Um, Elliot Gould is like kind of like, hey, you're, you know, Bobby Caldwell's kid, right? And he's like, yeah, he's like, good, get in the goddamn house. It's like, that's so fucking yeah. good. Like, it's and it's so old school Vegas. School. Like, it just, yeah. it really fits that character. Yeah, absolutely. I also like that they do a really good job of setting up the stakes of this, even before mm-hmm. they go into everything that has to be done. There's something that I think it, with a different director and writer probably would have been cut out. They have this segment of the three most successful uh, heist yeah. in Vegas history. And it's like one of them got knocked down when he grabbed it. One of them got to the door and one of them got shot like 20 feet outside the door. And they show each of these in succession to show you like, uh, this is a tough job. Like, yeah, this is something that has never been done before. And literally their lives are at risk. So I mm-hmm. like that they set the six because it could have just gone into like, you know, their spiel about what they were going to do and everything they had to go through. But instead they took that five minutes of a two-hour-long yep. movie, and five minutes doesn't seem like a long time, but five minutes out of 120, that's a pretty big chunk. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of a yep. movie. So to really take that time and set that up, I think, is really, really smart. And what uh, another thing the screenplay uh, does really, really well is you are part – you're number 12. Ocean's 11, and then you're that 12th – you're the 12th man or woman. And even though you know the plan – you don't really know the plan. Like you think you're seeing your opponents or your teammates' cards, but you're really I not. I love that they hold some stuff back. I really yep. enjoy that because if you tell us the plan and then you do the plan, who the fuck cares? That's yeah. It's There's not no as reason exciting. to watch it. Yeah, I mean things go wrong, and there are things that they hold back, and they they give little hints. Of course, the big thing is like not having the right thing on the floor, not having the right mm-hmm. logo. And yeah. when that when they first bring it in, they say like, "Oh, what is this for practice?" And Clooney, yes! Clooney just says, "Yeah, something like that." You know, exactly. and, and it's totally a disposable line. And the first time I watched it, I was like, okay, whatever. And then it comes yep. to fruition. You're like, oh, shit. Like, and it's, it's great to have that moment in the audience that surprises you, but not in a way that feels cheap. Like, it doesn't yeah. feel like a gotcha twist at the end. It feels like, mm-hmm. oh, they did show me that, and I just wasn't paying attention. And that's that's pretty cool. I also think, like, yeah. like any movie like this needs to, it has great, efficient introduction of the entire crew. Like, I think it maybe only takes 10 minutes for us to be introduced to everybody once they start gathering their crew together. But you know everything you need to know about them so quickly. And then you get these character moments throughout the yep. film. You know, and I just think I just think he does that really well. And it's just a really, really well-written film. Yep. Uh, and let me, how, 
and here's another god we can just talk about every single scene pretty much another one let's i guess i'll just give you one more is after they've got 10 people and uh danny is is quote-unquote talking to brad pitt at that moment he's like you think we need 11 and and he doesn't brad pitt doesn't say a word but it's the conversation they're still having like it's still that's how and it's very meta you know you get all these like little odes i mean i just think it's great so speaking of those odes let's jump to production value like i don't think like i've spent a fair amount of time in vegas i've been there five or six times i'm not sure i've ever seen a movie represent vegas so well like i it, I yeah, mean, I'm sure they did a lot of the filming there and it must have been really difficult, but it just like, especially what really strikes me is the scene near the end when they all gather outside like the fountains and there's just this moment of simplicity surrounded yeah. by all this decadence, not only in what they've done, but where they are. But it just like more than most movies, it just really feels like Vegas. Like you get, you get that feel not just from what's going on around them in the movie, but of course the setting and how they're acting and how other people act, you know, all the background people, like it just, it feels very real and feels like being in Vegas. I've been to Vegas once. It was earlier this year and I will absolutely agree with you. Uh, it, it absolutely felt like Vegas, not for a moment. I was like, well, they probably went to like, you know, AC or somewhere. Right. Uh, um, that's imitating Vegas. That absolutely felt very genuine. Um, they. I'm trying to think. Here's what thing about the production value, and this is not a knock against the movie. This is more of the Blu-ray transfer. Okay. It is horrific. Um, <laughs> I I don't know why. I just I, I because and I compared it with the DVD, and it's not much better than the DVD. Mm-hmm. I think this is a movie. Hopefully, with the reboot coming, uh, or not reboot, remake, whatever yeah. uh, they want to call reimagining, it, reimagining. Um, I guess reimagining. Yes. Uh, hopefully that'll get people to go back and you know this is not a forgotten french film from the 60s that <laughs> deserves a you know a restoration from uh you know an academic institution but i still would i like... disagree <laughs> <laughs> i i yeah i would still yeah i would really like a a proper remaster um so that's one thing um not 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 no knock against the production value but yeah um i think this one needs to be cleaned up a little bit uh it, or maybe i think it's smart that they don't overdo the production value in this movie yeah you know they mm-hmm. don't they don't try to dazzle you there's not a lot of stunts i mean you have the stuff with the asian character you know kind of mm-hmm. hiding and the you know jumping around the room and that stuff but and there's one small explosion you know with the door but they don't it would be easy to have like you know uh, a bunch of gunfights or you have the explosion with the with the bank earlier in the movie but that's just that's a character moment that's just to set yeah. up who this guy is. And I love that Soderbergh kind of holds some stuff back. Like, I'm sure he probably had, with this cast and with this property, I'm sure he had some extra money to play with. And I'm glad that he didn't. Like, I'm glad that he, because I think, I think you lose that sense of cool, that laid back sense if yes. the movie is overwhelmed by its production value. No, oh, I, I agree. Uh, this is not a Fast and Furious movie. Like, th- those Thank movies. God. Some of them, I think, are heist movies. I've gotten through like five of them. I think maybe five and a half, and I'm just, I just don't see what other people see. Um, although I do love like the big set pieces because yes. they are interesting to watch. Other than that, though, whew, there's a lot of plot that I just, I just don't care. <laughs> um, whereas with this one, I, I certainly do. Um, can we briefly talk about? Uh, well, uh, just, um, 12 and 13, are these the other two essential in the story of the lives of these characters? Uh, I don't think so, but they're fun, you know? Yeah. I would still recommend them. Like, if you enjoyed Ocean, Ocean's Eleven, 
you're probably yeah. going to like 12 and 13. So if you I want agree. another three or four hours of like laid back fun and enjoying mm-hmm. these characters, then go, go for it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I, I enjoy them. I think, I think even uh, like Ocean 12, I think still kind of comes close to Ocean's 11 in quality. I think it starts mm-hmm. to dip off after that, but that's okay. You're going to get that when you keep, yeah. I mean, because I mean, I love these characters, but there's not a tremendous amount of depth to them. So, like, no. the deeper you get with these movies, the more you're going to be like, okay, so how is this any different? And maybe that's the that's the joy in it, that it's not any different from watching Ocean's Eleven. That, like, yeah. you just want to spend time with these characters again on a different little adventure, you know? And, yep. I, and I think that's okay. They just need a little more money. And, uh... Yeah, who doesn't? <laughs> I relate right. to that. I completely relate to that. <laughs> All right. So let's talk about our favorite scene. So I'm going to start with something that's in the very beginning uh, that just, it cracks me up every time I watch it. There's a scene with, you know, Brad Pitt, like teaching these idiots how to play poker. The all reds <laughs> sequence. It gets me <laughs> every time. Fucking dumbass Topher Grace. Dealer will take three. You're done. Shane, you got three pairs. Yeah. You can't have three pairs. You can't have six cards in a five card game. Josh. Maybe one was Josh, I'm not talking about Dallas. Dallas. All. Okay. Reds. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what up, dog? All reds. And like, so a little history on me. I used to work in a casino. So I know idiots who come without training, and this happens. Like, this is not a joke, really. There are people who will, because they have a bunch of money to waste, I guess, will come to a poker card room not knowing how to play poker. And I was like, this is, I mean, this is funny, but it's really painful too. And and I love Brad Pitt's exasperation in that sequence. Like he can't say anything because these idiots are paying him cash. So he's like, all right, I'm just going to let this go. But you can see it like just behind his eyes, like these motherfuckers, what have I been reduced to? You know? And (laughs) And so you, and that moment's actually important because now you can see why he goes along with Danny's plan. Because he's Absolutely. unhappy and he doesn't want to be doing what he's doing. He wants that rush and he wants that camaraderie again. He wants someone who is on his level. So I, I love that. That scene just gets me every time. Um, ooh, God, I feel like I've mentioned all the favorite ones. Um, the uh, uh, He doesn't make me cry. Uh, a really powerful and, and very character-driven scene in a movie that's really more about the plot. Um, I will... One okay, the scene where you uh, are introduced to Matt Damon's character, and actually mm-hmm. this is the weakest uh, scene for me in the entire film. I think is because it slows down to show him uh, stealing uh, uh, the guy's it's wallet. Unnecessary. It's unnecessary. Like, oh, yeah, do it in real time so you actually see the skill. Right. Um. Mm-hmm. Like I and so uh, that one is great. Uh, for that reason, I don't think it's executed well. But the scene directly after, where they meet in that little pub, and he does—that's yeah, a good um, moment. Yeah. The, where he takes back the wallet, and and yeah. uh, you don't see it, and that's beautiful because you are Clooney in that moment. He's yep. like, and that's that's the best one I've seen you do, and that's another really wonderful scene. Again, and who doesn't uh, want to be Clooney? Any scene that makes yeah. me Clooney is gold. <laughs> Precisely. Oh, I completely agree. Uh, a wonderful uh, moment that, um, and, and it takes so li- it's so fast, and that's the problem. Not the problem. That's the uh, Soderbergh makes it look so easy, and it's not. This I think that's like, why, like when it came to direction and taking notes, like I didn't have a lot of notes on it because it's so just like the movie. It really fits. It's very effortless. Yeah. 
like everything yeah. like it's confident like he knows what he's doing i think that one scene with matt damon may be the exception where he's kind of hand holding a little bit yeah to kind of show yeah. the audience but like other than that man it's just it's so smooth like the, yep. the whole way through um the only other scene i wanted to talk about a little more was like danny and tess when they first meet up again um it's a really important scene because it it you know you you have to understand why he cares about her and i love that at the beginning it's playful it's mm-hmm. not just like you're an asshole and I don't want to see you again, even though that may be what she's feeling. I think deep down you can see that she cares about him and that she's – if nothing else, she's entertained by him. Like, yeah. you know, and that goes to that line, like, does he make you laugh? You feel that that is the – that was the crux of their relationship is that there was happiness there because because there was joy together and they laughed together and they enjoyed life together. And you really, really get that. And the way they banter back and forth like really works and it leads you into this false sense of, sense of security all the way up till that he doesn't make me cry. And I don't yeah. think – I don't think she would have said that if he didn't challenge her in that moment. And, and start talking about her new boyfriend, you know, and mm-hmm. I, I think that's, you know, I don't think she wanted to be mean. I think he brought that out of her. She was like, I'm willing to let this go. I'm willing to play along with you until you have to leave, but you got to go. So she yeah. realized, and I think in a lot of ways she's doing it to protect him because she mm-hmm. knows how dangerous and how ruthless her new boyfriend is. Like he treats her really well, but she's not yeah. dumb. She knows exactly what's going on. Um, yeah. But I think the the only other scene I really like that we need to talk about maybe is the switch. Uh, but I think we can hold that back for the theme, the switch on the floor. So, um, which has to do with kind of the automation bias that we're going to talk about. Yes. Um, but I think obviously we both really enjoy this movie. Highly recommend it. Like even even mm-hmm. if this whole movie has been spoiled at this point, I, I don't think it matters. <laughs> I think it's no, okay. No, it absolutely doesn't. I mean, you know, it, it's a heist movie with with a bunch of uh, A-listers. Um, you pretty much know how it's going to end, but you still want to know how <laughs> it's going to end. Right. Um, and they, they do a great job. We talked about the uh, an amazing um, way that it, it – kind of stays nonchalant throughout it's a perfect hangout movie it's i i don't i don't think it's quite as good as dazed and confused but that's another movie that it kind of reminds me of and if you Mm. i can sneak in a third recommendation here uh if you want another hangout movie it's dazed and confused you can put that movie on and just chill uh and this is kind of the same thing yeah Uh, yeah different styles but definitely yes i could see the the connection there all right so now we're going to talk about automation bias so this is this is definitely not the easiest theme we've ever talked about on the show i gave you a link to kind of let you know before you watch the movie so as you watch the movie it kept that in mind how do you think that that came into play here um you have to uh uh, reference andy garcia's character and the one line that uh matt damon says that this guy is a machine Mm -hmm. and that is he operates a very specific way um from a from a very specific time all the way until like the end of his day um and how you ha- you have to function that way if you're going to run a multiple casinos uh, to begin with and uh, essentially so run it by security. yourself too i mean yeah he doesn't trust anybody so you have to be yeah absolutely and and automation by it absolutely comes into play and that's what danny uses mm-hmm. in order to uh get that money out of there and and the whole movie you're what after you've seen those three guys attempt to steal money from a vegas casino in the beginning you're like how are they gonna get out of here right and the whole time you're wondering and so you yourself 
uh, um, are, are right in the shoes, uh, right there with Andy Garcia at the end, because you're watching the monitors just like he is. How are they going to get exactly. out of this? Yeah, exactly. So, um, it, it they pull one over not only on him but on on the viewer as well. Even though you're part of the gang, yeah. And I think not only is he a machine and acts like a machine, but he trusts machines too. Yes, uh, which is what automation bias is is all about, right? Like. Mm-hmm. Essentially, not even really trusting your own eyes, but trusting what the machines are meant to do. So he sees this video that he assumes is the same video feed uh, that yep. has always been. So he doesn't take into account, oh, it doesn't have the same logo. You know, he makes this kind of heuristic shortcut where it's like, well, that's the video on the screen and that video goes to the vault. So that's yep. the vault. And it's a and it's a totally understandable human reaction to not take all these things into account. And so he he views the screen and okay, okay, everything I'm seeing is real. So there's no way out of this. And that ends up being his downfall. Yep. Is not thinking uh, you, outside uh, the box. Uh Andy Garcia's right hand man, he uses his phone uh to call nine one one and he absolutely trusts that phone. If I dial nine one one, this is what I'm gonna get, right? Well, yeah. no. Uh, uh it was all uh, um uh, changed uh, by uh, the crew to make sure that that phone is going to dial. I don't know when they did it, but whatever. It's a cool movie. I'm not going <laughs> to yes, take it, pick yes. at it. Um, but yeah, he calls um, Brad Pitt, and even though Brad Pitt is not uh, a- an automated, uh, um, you know, a robot or message, it still uh, I think gives that same effect because that person has absolute trust in his phone. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. Perfect. All right, so uh, the last thing we have to do is talk about the new movie coming out. But before we talk about that, I was wondering mm-hmm. what you thought about – you mentioned this kind of reimagining, this this Ocean's 8, uh, which is, you know, pretty pretty okay. pretty star-studded. I mean, if you look at the cast, you've got Kate Blanchett, Sandra Bullock, Anne Hathaway, uh, Olivia Munn, Dakota Fanning, Rihanna, Helena Bonham Carter, Sarah Paulson, Katie Holmes, uh, also Richard Armitage, probably in a smaller role, Mindy Kaling. Um, so this is pretty star-studded. So, so what do you think about this kind of all-woman reboot of the Oceans franchise? Um, it's always a little tricky because ever since because you're uh, a sexist monster, yeah, pretty much, yeah, absolutely. Good to know. (laughs) You know, if if you're not in a kitchen making me a sandwich, now that'll be the opening of the episode right there. (laughs) You know, the thing is, like, ever since that uh, Ghostbusters remake came out, and the way uh, was it Sony that they used it in order, uh, like, certain aspects, the 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 reports were coming out to, um, uh advertise the film and focus on a specific topic and then i i personally did not like it i didn't like it because it was women i all four of them are are wonderful mm-hmm. um i love Melissa mccarthy I, I i am like i own all of mike and molly like that show's so good and jesus um, <laughs> i don't know if i respect you more or less for that that's <laughs> I, i'm committed i'm committed you and to, your sitcoms uh, jesus christ i know i I freaking love them. And so it did take me back to a simpler time, I think. I don't know. Uh, but I, I love the cast um, of this film. It's Gary Ross directing it. I think he's the guy that did the first Hunger Games. First Hunger Games, Games yeah. I, and that's the only thing I know him from. Uh, I have not seen any of his other stuff. So I'm kind of worried because Hunger Games was a little bit of a mess in terms of uh, – 
visual style. It was kind of all over the place, a lot of shaky cam stuff, and that's kind of the exact opposite of what Ocean's yeah, Eleven. Yeah, that's that's a good point. I mean, he's also done Pleasantville, uh, Sea Biscuit, and Free State of Jones uh, last year, which was not good. Uh, like that, that doesn't give me a lot. I think that's actually a good point that I didn't think of is. I liked the first Hunger Games movie, but the big issue was the shaky cam going on that I really didn't like. I didn't think it fit that movie. So, but maybe he's learned his lesson as far as action. So let's see what he does. But that cast, man, I just, I'm going to be there because of that cast. Like, that looks like a great female cast and I'm, I'm down for that. It'll be interesting to see if they can cool, they can carry off the cool that Oceans needs. Is Sandra Bullock a good, um, like counterpart to uh, um, George Clooney. Is she the George Clooney of, of actresses? Like, I mean, I would rather Kate Blanchett there. be in the, uh, be in that role. I think she's able, cause I think she's able to perform a lot of different types of acting mm. where Sandra Bullock kind of has her lane and kind of stays in it. I don't know if she has yeah. the charisma of Clooney. I'm not sure she yeah. does, but, but we'll see. Which, which actress would you say is the equivalent of of uh, George Clooney? Just in you know female. What? You know what? This would be. Um, hold on. Let me let me look this up. This would be aging it up a bit. Um, but I would love to see Helen Mirren in a part like that. Oh, I think yeah. that would be fun because I think she can play cool. I think I think, and it would be cool to see her. I don't know with a a younger counterpart. You know, like uh, not only the female part, but like her, you know, some guy she's going after, some guy that got away, some, you know, 35 year old, 40 good looking guy. Like I, I would I would watch that. Give me that. Definitely. But like to be fair, like Helen Mirren is probably my answer for everything. Like you just <laughs> cast Helen wonderful. Mirren and she's great Like because I think she's really funny and she's dramatically really good and she's just cool. You know, and Absolutely. she and she also has the ability to make fun of herself, which I think is necessary for a role like this. You can't take yourself too seriously, and I don't. I don't think she does. So mm-hmm. I would watch that. And I'm I'm glad we got um somebody like uh, Mindy Kaling. Yeah. Uh, who, hey, Indian represent and um, two actresses <laughs> of color in one movie. Yeah, My God, right. Rihanna and Mindy Kaling. Like, come on. Um. <laughs> Helena Bonham Carter, like I was so high on her for a long time, and then I and I feel like she just was in a few things that are a few too many things. That makes sense. Too many Tim Burton movies. Is that? (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) but I also think I think people people sleep on Helena Bonham Carter. I think people forget. Like, yes, she has been in all the creepy Tim Burton movies, but she is an accomplished, excellent actress. Um, so, so she's someone I would like to see get a little more publicity lately and doing something new. And it'll be fun to see her maybe in a pseudo comedic role. Cause I think she can do that as well. I think Rihanna is the only other cat. cat she's, she's a weak yeah. actor. I mean, you know, mm. she was, I guess, serviceable at best in Valyrian, uh, that came out a couple weeks ago. She kind of feels like she's reading cue cards a bit. Um, so I don't know. Maybe a movie like this will be more natural to her style. I don't know. Maybe they'll I think limit she can play her. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. So, so anytime at this point, if I see Rihanna in a cast list, I'm not exactly jumping for joy. Um, but you know, we'll see. I just hope it's not an excuse to have like some hit single for the film. You know, like I've seen quite a bit of that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, who knows? But was it Shakira and like Zootopia? Like, yes, that's true. Her character yep. was there for no reason. And other her than character that. was a singer. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, right. Other than that, yeah. 
Yeah. All right. So let's move on to the movie that that is actually coming out this week. So let's move on to Logan Lucky, of course, uh, directed by Steven Soderbergh. Uh, another star-studded cast. Uh, got um, Channing Tatum, Daniel Craig, uh, Sebastian Stan, Seth MacFarlane, Adam Driver, uh, Katie Holmes, Hilary Swank. I mean, this is uh, there's there, it's not a cast. It's not there's no there's no Pitt and there's no Clooney here. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's no mega star because we don't really have that anymore. But it does look. You're right. Yeah. It looks less cool and more kind of dirty, grungy, silly uh, than Oceans does. But but I think we know at this point that Soderbergh can do a heist movie. So do you find yourself looking forward to Logan Lucky? I uh, I do. It's probably something I might uh, do like a matinee showing. I'm not going to rush out to see this one. To be honest with you, um, if it, if I wait for Redbox, that's okay too. It, it seems like it's going to be a good time either way. The one name that sticks out uh, and very, very de- uh, divisive uh, name is Seth MacFarlane. Mm-hmm. I pretty much am a total mark for the guy. I will watch anything that he puts his, you know, uh, uh, so you're going to watch that on. stupid Star Trek uh, knockoff or, that he's. Yeah. Out it, it looks genuinely. Um, uh, like it, it, genuine. That's I think that's the word. It looks very genuine in its um, uh, uh, homage to Star Trek, while still kind of being Star Trek. It's so weird. We're gonna have that and a Star Trek film. Uh, excuse me, a Star Trek uh, show kind yeah, of around weird the same timing. Time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I think he Seth MacFarlane. I mean, he obviously did not write this film or direct it. I think his projects tend to run a little long. Something like A Million mm-hmm. Ways to Die in the West. If it was like. 20, 30 minutes shorter, I think it would have been a much more... Or if it uh, never came out, I'd, you know. I love, love that! Come on, there's a lot of good stuff. I, I, I mean, comedy, you you can't... In religion, politics, and comedy. Yeah, I feel like very <laughs> subjective. I think the thing I'm most looking forward to in this movie, though, after seeing the trailer, yeah. is Daniel Craig. Like, yeah. he is going all out on the comedy in this movie. Like, a ridiculous voice, a ridiculous look, and it looks like he's just going for it. And I kind of love that. Like, and I'm sure he must just crave this after... And I love James Bond movies, but Mm -hmm. they don't exactly let you branch out as an actor within those movies. There's a very specific type that you're playing. So it's going to be fun to see him do something a little different, do something a little wacky and crazy. Even projects like uh, uh, Girl with a Dragon Tattoo, he was... uh, supposed to play like a total kind of opposite of bond and and do a total geek and he mm-hmm. was able to do that but it didn't feel like it was far enough from right. from him being just a total stud and, and well and, it also uh, comes off guy. they both come off as stoic characters i think that's yeah. probably why it doesn't and this definitely does not <laughs> mm-hmm. but i am i it's it's watching the trailer like i laughed throughout the trailer i think it's a very good trailer um my only concern is like i hope it's not too jokey you know what I mean? Yeah. Because it is still a heist movie at its core, so it has to be exciting and fun and throw you for a loop like the Oceans movies do. But the the trailer is like joke, 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 joke. Like everything mm-hmm. is, you know, I got all the tweets and well, I got the internets and like, you know, it's like, okay, guys, <laughs> like hopefully that's – and I think it's just the trailer. I think there's going to be yeah. more to it than that. I mean would Soderbergh just do a jokey movie? I mean who knows? But I doubt I it. So. They need to sell the movie. That's why they do that. Like Atomic Blonde's a good example because I was going in there expecting female John Wick, and that was not female John Wick. And thank goodness it wasn't. It was kind of its own little uh, wonderful nugget. Yep. Um, Adam Driver, anything that he does, coming off of Patterson for me, like that movie was a revelation in a time when I mean, what a year he had. Patterson and Silence in the same year. That's that's not too bad. So Um, he's all right. Yeah, my, my. 
biggest complaint with Silence is that it wasn't there wasn't enough Adam Driver. I love Garfield, but I, I needed more Adam Driver. I love this guy so much. I think I'm gonna have to go and like start watching Girls. That show I kind of stayed away from because it didn't. I I don't think I'm the target audience, but he's so good. <laughs> you think? That... <laughs> Man, I oh, I have zero interest in watching that show. You you can uh, enjoy that just like you enjoy your fucking sitcoms, <laughs> yeah. and you can report back to me. <laughs> Not too many people have four seasons of Family Matters on DVD, but right, you know, I think I'm, that's I'm... a good place to end the episode. Thank you. That is the perfect transition to the end. Uh, but one more time, why don't you tell people how they can contact you online? Yeah, absolutely. I'm on Twitter at oh the darn that dream. Um, darn that dream is my podcast. Uh, all of uh, one episode is up. Hopefully, two by the time this airs. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm I, I've got a few things planned. Um, I, I've got some outside projects that I'm um, looking at doing, including a, a potential audiobook. book. Uh, I might be lending my name uh, to something that will totally be uh, accessible and, and available for free. Uh, so, yeah, I've got a few projects in mind. Hopefully uh, my schedule allows me to get them all out uh, as soon as I can. So uh, thank you so much for having me on. Um, I, I am – again, like I'm, I'm so – thankful that there are people out there willing to to communicate with me and 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 you know just kind of listen to what i i have to say every now and then like i am like like everybody i think like i discussed uh, film twitter very briefly like i can't believe that's a thing <laughs> um everybody has such uh, everything is a hot take and and you know i'm glad that we are are doing what we can to uh, bring some uh, um some 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 uh, uh, tranquility. There you go. Nice. <laughs> Not that, so that's much Absolutely. Alright, thanks everyone for listening to another episode of Pop Culture Case Study. And all jokes aside, thank you to Webb for being here and enduring my abuse one more time as we talked about Ocean's Eleven. So Hopefully we'll be doing a new release review on Logan Lucky, but I have to start thinking these things through just a little bit more because I live in Reno now and not in San Jose, and I'm just never sure what's going to be playing around here. Uh, But I really didn't want to cover the Hitman's Bodyguard, so uh, keep your fingers crossed that I get a showing of Logan Lucky and can actually cover it. Uh, But if you like the show, and I hope you do, uh, please keep listening and tell your friends about the show. Uh, Download it onto their phones without them noticing if you got to do it that way. Please just uh, help the show out, help us grow. And if you want to connect with the show, we've got a Facebook group, a Facebook page, an Instagram page. uh, And we've also got, of course, Twitter, uh, where you can contact me at PCKStudy. And uh, you may know this, if you follow me on Twitter, you do, uh, starting a new podcast uh, with my buddy Mike. We are doing a podcast, a kind of, kind of based on romantic comedies, uh, but we're kind of stretching that definition a little bit. It's called The Grand Gesture, so look out for that coming your way soon. Uh, and if you'd like to help us out monetarily, you can go to patreon.com slash popculturecasestudy. And you can donate on a per-episode basis and get some pretty cool rewards and you get to support an independent podcast. All right, that's it for this episode. Until next time, I will be here diagnosing your favorites and judging you for what you watch. And it's been a long uh, few days, actually. Um, one of my cousins is getting married. He's kind of like uh, um, the cousin. 
uh, um, in terms of uh, uh, well, he he's the doctor in the family, so oh, he's, he's the, one the good one, right? <laughs> exactly. He's the one who so, lived up to uh, the classic Indian parental expectations. Uh-huh. Fuck yeah, him! Fuck that guy! That guy's the worst. I hate him already. <laughs> Specifically, my parents' expectations. Yeah, exactly. <laughs>